Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the, another opportunity to, to gather as your community here in, in Mission Hills and just worship you, learn more about you. Uh, we pray this time you would, you would speak to us, we, you would use um, your scripture uh, to just open, open our eyes and open our hearts to a new message that you have for us today. And we're incredibly grateful. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Morning. Good morning. Good to see everyone. So we've been going through, uh, if you were here last week, uh, you know that it is now ordinary time in the church calendar. So uh, we thought it would be a good moment for us to uh, talk about a framework for what it is to be Mission Hills Christian Church in the summer of 2016. And so we started off using this uh, motif, love God, embrace beauty, and live life to the fullest. And this is the framework uh, through what we're going to work by. So if you were here last week, we, uh, we started out with the idea of love God. Love God through our struggle with God. So we, uh, we went through the story of Jacob in the desert getting attacked by God and talking about how uh, Jacob's moment of wrestling with God amidst his family conflict, amidst his uh, uh, societal uh, woes, that he was one that was able to wrestle with God uh, and receive God's blessing, which was in fact the name, what? One who wrestles with God. And so today, uh, we're going to spend one more week on what it is to, to love God, and we're going to transition from this idea of, of struggling uh, with God to struggling alongside God. What does it mean uh, as a people who now uh, wrestle with God to take that wrestling out into the world and do something? And we're going to do it by uh, taking a, a different, uh, maybe a different approach to the uh, biblical narrative. Uh, I know when I sort of first heard this approach to the biblical narrative, it was new for me. Uh, and so maybe it'll be a fresh way that we could see ourselves as part of God's story, continuing uh, from the scriptures and into today. So that would be our task. How many people here like puzzles? People like, like really, like thousands of pieces like to do puzzles? All right, Jenny, here. I brought you a puzzle, Star Wars puzzle. Here you go. Good catch. So uh, I'm, not, I'm not super good at puzzles, uh, but I was thinking about this week, and you know, the youth are doing Survivor Summer, and I love watching the, the show Survivor. I've watched it for years, and uh, now Andrea and I watch it. And one of the great things about Survivor is the obstacle course. Right, so every every week there's an immunity challenge, and they are faced with uh, this like physical challenge where they have to, you know, traverse through the water and back through the sand. And usually at the end there's a puzzle of some sort. And what's great about the puzzle portion of the challenge is that once it gets to the puzzle, it's really anyone's game. And what often happens is uh, the person who led all the way through the physical challenge gets to the puzzle, and then they get stuck. They get hung up, and so. You see it a lot of times that someone who was last in the physical challenge suddenly gets on a roll in the, in the puzzle portion, and the person that was in the lead is all of a sudden looking over, trying to figure out what in the world this person's doing that was way behind them to solve this puzzle. And you know when that person starts looking over, they're done for. Like they, <laughs> there's, never, there's never been the person who was like, 
trying to copy someone's puzzle and then beat the person they were copying. It just never, never works like that. And that's kind of how I think of uh, sometimes when we look at our faith and how we integrate it in our lives, sometimes we're looking at someone else's puzzle or someone else's, uh, like if we're thinking of a classic puzzle like the one Jenny has, uh, we're looking at uh, maybe a different lid to that puzzle. And we have to be, as people of faith, constantly examining what is the lid. Because we have all these pieces. We have the Bible. We have our experience. We have uh, usually a church tradition that we've been following maybe for our whole lives. And so we have these pieces, and sometimes uh, we're looking at someone else's puzzle to figure out how to put these pieces together to make up our faith. And so today, I want to look at the, the scriptural narrative and try to think, rethink, are we looking at someone else's lid? Are we looking at the right lid? And that's something that we constantly have to, to put into question. So in order to do this, we're going to, we're going to go back and look at uh, the uh, Old Testament. So if you, if you will, turn to uh, Genesis 4. Uh, there's Bibles in the seat backs, or you can just flip to it on your phone. Uh, We've been going through a lot of the Old Testament lately, which is, um, has been really fun. It's pretty unintentional, but Genesis 4, and uh, I want to frame our discussion today uh, by this Hebrew word, sa'ak, not sa'ak, not sa'ak, but sa'ak, and, and to think of this word as one that defines uh, who we are and how we are to be in the world and how God relates to us as people of faith. Sa'ak, say it with me. Sa'ak. All right, so sa'ak we find first used in Genesis chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 10. And the Lord says, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So you're thinking that's a really weird verse to lead off Ryan with? Yes, yes it is. It's a, weird ver- it's a weird verse. So in Genesis 4, we pick up this story. You know, uh, maybe you've heard of Adam and Eve. Uh, they are created in the garden, uh, decide they uh, like to do things their own way, and they, they go eastward out of the garden. And there's this trajectory in Genesis of people moving eastward out of, out of the garden, out of the way that God has sort of uh, framed the world. And what we find here is the story of Cain and Abel. Anyone ever heard this story before? And so Cain and Abel, just one generation after Adam and Eve, they're kids. Uh, Cain kills Abel, and the Lord responds with this. What have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And sa'ak is that word cry or cry out. It's often used in the scripture as uh, a cry for help to God. And God says here for the first time, uh, I hear the cries of the ones who hurt. I hear the cries of your brother's blood. Uh, Just to prove this to you a bit more, uh, we see this all the time in the Psalms. I'll read a few. Psalm 77, my voice uh, rises to God and I cry aloud. My voice rises to God and God hears me. Psalm 88, O Lord, the God of my salvation, I have cried out by day and night before you. Psalm 107, then they cried out to the Lord, saw ox to the Lord. In their trouble, he delivered them out of distress. Psalm 107, then they cried out to the Lord, in their trouble, and God brought them out of their distresses. So this word, sa'ak, this cry out, this cry for plea of God, that frames the way uh, the Israelite people understood their relationship with God, and that is the same tradition that we follow today. And so our main uh, text to understand this is the 
the pivotal moment in the Hebrew Scriptures, which is the moment of Exodus. So Exodus 3, 7. Uh, we were in Exodus chapter 3 a couple weeks ago when Ryan was here talking about uh, uh, how God first named God's self. And does anybody remember that word? That, ha- that God named God's self for the very first time? It's four letters. Yahweh. yod he bah Essentially the sound of breathing. So we're going to go back to Exodus 3, verse 7, which is right before God named himself. And we find God... Uh, has approached uh, Moses as a burning bush in the wilderness. And uh, God says in verse 7, I have seen uh, how my people in Egypt are being mistreated. I have heard their groaning when the slave drivers torment and harass them, for I know well their suffering. So the Lord approaches uh, Moses here and says, I have heard the what of the people? The sa'ak of the people. I have heard the, the cry of the people that are in, in slavery, suffering in Egypt. Verse 8, I have come to rescue them from the oppression of the Egyptians, to lead them out of the land where they were slaves, and to give them good land, a wide open space flowing with milk and honey. The land is uh, currently inhabited by the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, uh, the Hivites, and the Jezebites. Uh, a plea of Israel, Israel's children has come before me, and I have observed the cruel treatment they have suffered at, by Egyptian hands. So go. I'm sending you back to Egypt as my messenger to the Pharaoh. I want you to gather my people, uh, the children of Israel, and bring them out of Egypt. Then Moses goes and says, okay, well, who do I tell you? He says, Yahweh. Uh, but the important thing here for our discussion today is that God is one who hears the cry of the oppressed. When the Israelites uh, go on their uh, journey into the wilderness, that is how they define themselves, as, as people of God, of the God who heard the cry of the oppressed. What's interesting is, is we, uh, we find for the very first time uh, later in Exodus, uh, the Israelites are, are rescued uh, by Moses. They go out into the wilderness, and God, for the first time that we know of, ever addresses a group of people. And when God addresses a group of people, he addresses them uh, at Sinai and gives them the Ten Commandments. So he gives them the Ten Commandments. Uh, and so we tend to think of these as, you know, sort of like oppressive rules that we just need to, like, check off or we had to memorize, like, in Sunday school or something as a kid. And they're really sort of boring, but they're revolutionary in the history of civilization. Essentially, God says, uh, you are now my people I have liberated you out of Egypt, and you are now to be liberators. So uh, you don't have to flip there, but Exodus uh, 22, uh, 21 and 22, when when, uh, Yahweh gives the people uh, who they are to be in the world, he says uh, among the Ten Commandments, uh, do not wrong or oppress any outsiders living among you. For there was a time when you lived as outsiders in the land of Egypt. You know what it's like to be oppressed. You know what it's like to be judged by just how many bricks that you can make. You are a cog in the system of oppression. Now you are to not oppress other people. Verse 22, you must not take advantage of any widow or of any orphan. Do not oppress them. Uh, and they cry out. if they cry out to me, I will certainly hear them. So uh, God says, uh, I hear the sa'ak of everyone. I hear the cry of the oppressed. He says, my wrath will not be kindled. I will make sure that you, you are slaughtered by your enemy's sores uh, and your own wives uh, will become widows and orphans. Bit of a threat there. Uh, so, but essentially Yahweh is saying that uh, you are now given this gift of grace. You have now been liberated. You are to go out into the world and to be 
uh, my hands and feet, my liberation for the world. Uh, Exodus 23, 9 says, uh, Do not oppress any outsider. You know what it's like being an outsider living in a foreign land. Uh, for you were once strangers uh, in, in the land of Egypt. Uh, liberation always begins with a cry, and, and God, Yahweh, always hears the cry of the oppressed. This is the centering narrative of our faith. What we see, uh, if you know the Old Testament, as we go along, uh, we know that the story uh, doesn't end there. It, it doesn't have this happy ending of, of the Israelites just saying, yeah, we'll, you know, we'll do this. Uh, but what happens? Uh, is David and Solomon. So several generations later, uh, Israel is a kingdom, right? You have King David, King Solomon. Solomon is, is David's son. And Solomon has this massive massive kingdom just a few generations later and he builds a, a temple right he builds a temple to Yahweh with what you want to know builds it with slaves so Solomon uses slave labor to build the temple honoring the God of slaves uh, you can see in scripture that Solomon has not only used slave labor to build a uh, a, a temple honoring the God of the oppressed, but he is also uh, an arms dealer. He has military bases, and he is using his power, wealth, and influence to protect his power, wealth, and influence. Uh, just a few generations later, the Israelite people are very far from the God that rescued them from Egypt. So they spend some time uh, later in, in Babylon, and uh, there's uh, prophets that rise up. One of those prophets is named, named Isaiah. And a Isaiah has uh, uh, several parts to it. Most scholars think it was uh, written by multiple people. So there's, there is a, an Isaiah, but uh, the book of Isaiah is written by uh, multiple people throughout many generations. And one of those uh, iterations of a period of writing was in, uh, in Babylon, in, in exile. And what they're what Isaiah is writing of, what Isaiah is dreaming of, is a new exodus, a different exodus, one that doesn't come uh, by violence and oppression, but one that actually comes through service. So uh, we, we see in Isaiah uh, chapter 40 where uh, this idea is, uh, is really hit on. So he says, a voice is wailing in the wilderness. So, so Isaiah is back in the wilderness, signaling uh, this idea of Yahweh bringing in a new exodus. Get ready. Prepare the way. Make it a straight shot. The eternal would have it so. Straighten the way in the wandering of the desert and make crooked, uh, make the crooked road wide and straight for our God. Where there are steep valleys and treacherous descents, raise the highway. Lift it up. Bring down the dizzying heights. Fill uh, potholes and gullies in all of the rough places. Iron out the shoulders flat and wide. The Lord will be, really be among us. The radiant glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will take it in. Believe it, no, none other than God, the Eternal, has spoken. So there is this anticipation after, after they've gotten out of Egypt, after they have built their kingdom and their temple, and now they're in exile, uh, the prophets and the people are dreaming of a new exodus. But this time it's different. It's not the one that comes, it's violence and oppression, not the one that enslaves uh, people and turns it back but one where Yahweh is coming in radical love and service. This is picked up in the New Testament. And maybe if you uh, 
are familiar with uh, John the Baptist, that little passage uh, may be familiar. John the Baptist in Luke uh, 3 says, uh, John the baptizer brought this divine message to all. He preached that people should be ritually cleansed and baptized. And as Isaiah the prophet said, a voice go into the wilderness, prepare the road for the eternal one's journey, in the desert repair and straighten every mile of our true God's highway. Every low place will be lifted and every high mountain, every hill will be humbled. The crooked road will be straightened out and rough places ironed out and smooth. Then the radiant glory of the eternal one will be revealed. All flesh together will take it in. So John picks up this same idea. And whenever the, uh, Luke, the writer of this gospel, is writing this down, he is saying, oh, I, I get the connection. Jesus is now the suffering servant, the one that Isaiah had talked about, who is bringing about a new exodus for all people, not via violence and oppression, but via this new radical self-giving love and service. And so whenever John the Baptist is out there proclaiming the way for Jesus, you know, we talked about uh, the early Christians when we were going through Acts were characterized by the way. That actually comes from Isaiah. And so whenever we find uh, Jesus coming in the next chapter, Luke chapter 4, he also quotes from Isaiah. And I actually talked about this verse the very first week I was here during my, uh, I think that was during my, one of my tryout Sundays. We talked about Jesus' first sermon. And so Jesus walks in. He's about to ca- you know, kick off his, his ministry, and he goes to his hometown on a Saturday in the synagogue and begins, uh, begins to talk. So he, he goes up to the front, asks the tenant for the scroll of Isaiah, and the tenant would have handed him the scroll, and Jesus would have rolled it out on, on lambskin or some uh, sort of parchment, and he would have gone to a very specific passage. And what does Jesus do? Jesus finds uh, a very similar passage uh, of this idea of new exodus. And so he says in, uh, in chapter 4, The Spirit of the Lord, the Eternal One, is on me. This is quoting Isaiah 61. Because the Eternal has designated me as his representative to the poor to preach the good news to them. Uh, so here he says, you know, my, we won't read this whole thing because it's kind of long, but he, he announces his ministry is for the poor, to set the captive free. And uh, everybody there at the synagogue is really, they're, they're liking this. They're feeling what he says. You know, this may have some benefit to them. He, he is announcing this idea of new exodus that would have been very attractive uh, for any, any person that went to the synagogue on a Saturday. But then he sort of gives his interpretation and says, well, actually, uh, my, my kingdom, uh, God's kingdom, is for everyone. It is for the Gentile as well. And uh, then they, they go and they, they try to throw him off the cliff. Uh, God always hears the cry of the oppressed, and Jesus now takes this message upon himself. And so we, we know from, from Exodus, uh, you know, the, the Jewish people are not too oppressed. They're, they're supposed to uh, help and look after the widow. And, and Jesus is saying, uh, I'm, I'm taking the same puzzle pieces, and uh, I'm rethinking the lid. I'm, I'm arranging the, this puzzle in a slightly different way than, than what you might think. And we see this again in, in Luke chapter 20. And Jesus is uh, speaking to his disciples. They're uh, somewhere in around scribes and Pharisees. And he says, you know, beware of the religious scholars. They like to parade around in long robes. So do I. 
they, they love being greeted in the marketplaces. They love taking uh, the best seats in the synagogues. Uh, they adore uh, being seated around the head table at banquets. But they, in their greed, they rob widows. And they cover up their greed with long, pretentious prayers. Their condemnation will be all the worse because of their hypocrisy. And then he turned his attention from the religious scholars to some wealthy people who were uh, depositing their donations in the, in the offering boxes. Uh, a, a widow, obviously poor, came up and, and dropped in two copper cor- coins into, into one of the boxes. Maybe you've heard this story. And Jesus says, I'm, I'm telling you the truth. This poor widow has, been made, has made a bigger contribution than all of those rich fellows. Uh, they're just giving from their surplus, but she is giving from her poverty. She is giving all she has to give. And now this passage is, is sometimes used wrongly. They're sometimes used to, to say, oh, look how great this widow is. She's giving everything. But if we know this backstory, if we know that uh, God tells the Israelite people, whenever you make a covenant with me, uh, you are to not oppress anyone. You are to look after the poor. You are to look after the widows. And then Jesus comes along in Luke 4 and says, I'm here for the poor. I'm here for the oppressed. I'm here for the, the person that's in prison. And then Luke, Luke in, in chapter 20 tells the story of Jesus uh, here with religion, religious scholars and saying, you know, look at, look at these guys. They're, they're doing exactly what Yahweh told them not to do. The, the orig- they're breaking the original uh, covenant with Yahweh that said, don't oppress the poor. Don't oppress the widow. And they're, they, at this point, the temple is now, it's an economic system. They are making good money off of, uh, off of people to, to continue to build their power, wealth, and influence. They've gone back again to using a religious system to oppress people. And Jesus said, you're oppressing this widow. She's putting in all she has, and you're taking advantage of her. God always hears the cry of the oppressed. Um, I was uh, I told a story a few weeks ago about uh, being in Nairobi, Kenya on a mission trip several years ago and, and on that trip we, we had the opportunity to do some work in, in Kibera which is uh, one of the largest slums in Africa and when we were, we were going through um, it becomes very clear uh, that is, is a really rough scenario, but I started noticing that people were really staring. So I, I asked the guy that I was walking with, I said, you know, um, why, are everyone, why is everyone staring like so intensely at us as we're walking through? And if you know anything about Kibera, it's roughly 800,000 people that live there. There's no, uh, there's no sewage system. Uh, just now, in the last few years, places are getting running water. Uh, so it's just shacks on shacks. I think we have a picture actually from, from that trip. Do you have that, Julie? Um, so if you see, this is kind of what we're walking through. Uh, a lot of times there's just uh, piles of trash uh, and then all of these shanties so that people just uh, live in these uh, tin roof houses uh, and this goes on for I mean, as far as you can see. So we're walking through. We're going up to the soccer field and uh, I asked this guy, why is everybody uh, staring at us? so intense. So you can just see like we're kind of walking on, uh, there's just kind of like piles of trash. And uh, the guy said, you know, they see groups like you come in all the time and nothing ever, like nothing ever changes. Uh, and 
you know, he said, we're, we're just tired of it. We're just, we're just really tired. Um, and I, I've never been able to, to read the scripture in, in the same way. Um, there are sometimes not easy answers, but it doesn't change the fact that God always hears the cry of the oppressed. Um, that we, as uh, name bearers of Christ, uh, you know, Christ uh, isn't actually Jesus' last name. I, it's, it's, not, it's not his last name at all. It actually means uh, anointed or liberating king. Uh, and that is following in the tradition of Isaiah. And it's also a very political statement. We kind of talked about that in Acts, that saying Christ was liberating king was kind of uh, putting a big, you know, slap in the face to, to Rome and to Caesar, who was also wanting to be Prince of Peace, liberating king. When you went to uh, purchase something, you had to pay homage to Caesar as Lord. And they said, no, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is liberating king. And so we have this tradition that we follow, um, that we are now called uh, to be liberators. Uh, Christian, the word actually just means little Christ. And like I said, that simply means uh, liberators. So we are called to be to be liberators. Uh, whenever it comes down to how how do we do this today? How you know it seems um, impossible to take on massive tasks such as poverty, to take on uh, huge numbers uh, such as uh, you know 62 people as of 2016. 62 people. 62 people, all right? 62 people have more wealth than 3.5 billion people on our planet. 62 people. Like 10 years ago, that number was 1,200. And in the last 15 years, that has gone from 1,200 people, which is still not very many to have more wealth than half the world. But now 62 people have more money than half of the population. Uh, two, roughly 2 billion people live on less than... Uh, $3 a day. That extreme poverty numbers are getting better, but two people live on $3 a day. Uh, there are 783 million people that don't have access to clean water still today. Whenever we see and hear numbers like that, it can be really daunting to think, how can we be liberators? How can we take up this life uh, that we have been called to as people who are on this journey with God in a new exodus. What does it mean to love God? It means to be liberators. To, to as Isaiah says uh, in one of his new exodus passages, uh, to turn swords into plowshares. There's a guy named Shane Claiborne. Has anybody ever heard or read anything by Shane Claiborne? Uh, he's a guy that works a, a nonprofit ministry in Philadelphia, and he's actually taken this very literally so this idea of, of being new exodus liberators, turning swords into plowshares, whenever Isaiah is talking about this idea of the new exodus not being about one that ends up in violence, but ones that actually uh, turn something that is used to uh, kill, something that's used to uh, diminish life, into something that actually gives life, that gives back into the soil. There's a picture here we have of... Uh, he has done this very literally, where uh, this week even, this is a picture from this week, they took uh, a 9 millimeter gun, uh, one just like uh, 
uh, one that killed uh, Trayvon Martin, and uh, they turned it into a So that was a forge. They forged it in the fire and they turned it into a plowshare and are oxygen and auctioned it off. Um, so he's taken this message very literally. Uh, the new exodus is about turning swords into plowshares. Swords into plowshares. So yes, we are we are called to struggle with God, uh, and yes, we are called to to struggle alongside God, to be out in the world serving as liberators, uh, turning swords into plowshares whenever we see an opportunity. And God wants us to be liberated from anything and everything that oppresses us today. I mean, we have things uh, that we are tormented by. We have things that in our own lives uh, are oppressing us, and God is rescuing and calling us uh, to be liberators for each other. So I'll close with this. May we be caught up in a magnificent journey of this life, life of a liberating king. May we realize that Jesus invites us into a new exodus, one that turns swords into plowshares, one that frees us from all oppression here and now. When Jesus comes and in Luke chapter 4, he says, this prophecy of Isaiah has been filled today. So that through love and grace and service, we may become little Christ, tiny forces of liberation wherever we go. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we are challenged and uh, amazed by uh, your life and your vision for our lives. And uh, sometimes we are both daunted by uh, the oppression that the world heaps on us from every angle. We feel there is no escape, and we cry out to you, Lisa Ox. We know that you hear the cry of the oppressed. So, Lord, if we are here today and we are feeling weighted down, we're feeling... Like there's just no escape to the pain, no escape to uh, the conflict in our lives. May you comfort us in that you are the ultimate liberator. That you've liberated us personally and in society once and for all. That your liberation came from uh, a true Prince of Peace. One that uh, in suffering and in service loved and died by the hands of oppression. Lord. We pray that this message seeps into our very fabric of our being in order that we can be transformed and go out into the world as liberators for you. That you would give us the strength uh, to, in service, love beyond what we think is possible. That we may, too, turn swords into plowshares. We thank you for this challenge. We thank you for your love and for your transformation and grace in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.